Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 52, the Viking origin story, Womb of Nations. Welcome back to another origin story episode. We are taking a pause from the Greek narrative to turn our attention to a big player in European history. Everyone's heard of them, but most people don't realize how much influence they had on the medieval Greek world. We are talking, of course, about the Vikings. When most people think of Vikings, they picture burly men with horned helmets and battle axes. A lot of Viking history has been mythologized. Even today you get TV shows that twist and distort the truth of the Vikings. So we're going to dedicate the next couple of episodes explaining just who the Vikings are and how they relate to the story of modern Greece. The Proto-Indo-European Connection We can start off by saying the Vikings are a branch of the Indo-European tree. But when did they split off from the Hellenistic branch, and how did they get to where they are now? In the first episode, we discussed the homeland of the Proto-Indo-European people in eastern Ukraine. While the Hellenes migrated south and entered Greece through the Balkans, the branch that would develop into the Vikings headed west. This migrating group of people moved slowly over generations. But they eventually came upon a mountain chain, something they had never encountered in the Eurasian steppe. This mountain chain split the land in half. As the people settled along the edge of the mountains, there became only two ways to go. New settlements could either form to the north or to the south, but the Carpathian Mountains prevented them from traveling any further west. The tribes that slowly migrated south became the Celtic and Italic people, settling in southern Europe. And the tribes that migrated north around the Carpathian Mountains evolved into the Corded Ware culture, or Proto-Germanic. With a Viking branch having left the Indo-European homeland and settling the plains of northern Europe, they evolved into a culture known to scientists as the Corded Ware culture. The only reason we call them by this name is because of the pottery uncovered in their archaeological sites. When these people finished shaping their clay pottery, a rope was tied around the vase before it was fired up in the kiln. Once the pottery was taken from the kiln and the cord removed, it left a cool indentation. It is from this type of pottery that they get the name Corded Ware Culture. Around 2300 BCE, an offshoot of the Corded Ware culture migrated further west and further north, reaching the land we call Scandinavia. Here they met another culture of farmers known as the Pitted Ware culture. The battle axe culture survived through the male gene, and the Pitted Ware culture's male gene died out. 
That sounds technical. So let's put it this way. The men of the battle-axe culture came into Scandinavia and killed all the men and took the women as wives. It was a conquest. It is totally possible the women willingly chose to marry the battle-axe men in en masse, abandoning the men of their own culture in favor of taller and more handsome men. Still, it's hard to take that argument seriously when with the name battle-axe culture. Maybe that would make sense if they were called the tall and handsome culture. It makes much more sense that the battle-axe men came into the village and killed everyone. We now have a battle-axe-wielding culture in Scandinavia, but it doesn't quite catch us up to the Vikings. We're still at least 2,000 years away from the first recorded encounter with the Vikings in Wessex. So what was going on all this time? The Nordic Bronze Age started late in Scandinavia, but that doesn't mean it didn't make it at all. Just like the rest of the known world, bronze traders had made their way to Scandinavia. As I'm sure everyone listening already knows what the Bronze Age was. It was a time of global trade and immense wealth and luxuries. Traded goods were shipping as far east as China and as far west as Britain, with many traders from Nigeria and Ethiopia making it as far north as Scandinavia. Scandinavia was heavily forested, which was an excellent source for amber. They would have harvested their amber and traded it south on a boat by taking one of the several great rivers which flowed through northern Europe. In 1800 BCE, the first traces of bronze appeared in northern Europe. It didn't happen fast, and it took almost a century for the floodgates to open. But by the 1700s, there was an abundance of bronze and other precious metals. Trade was booming in the north, and amber flowed south along the great rivers. There is a remarkable stone carving in Sweden that dates back to around this time. The carving looks like a giant mural on the side of a mountain. There are dozens of men carrying battle axes and shields, and amongst them are boats. Dozens of boats. It almost looks like a fleet of ships. But what is most fascinating about these specific carvings is the boats look remarkably similar to the Viking boats. Another interesting image that appears again and again are primitive chariots. The graves around this time change. Before, the battle axe culture buried their dead with copper axes. And now they were being buried with bronze axes. It's incredible how much we learn from ancient graves. Not only can we tell when the ages shift, but we can also tell that they were religious. Why else would they bury a warrior with his weapon unless they thought they were going to need it in the afterlife? The religion of these people is in question. We have many carvings and paintings on rocks that give us a basic understanding of their belief system, but it appears as though There was a similar scenario going on in Scandinavia as there was in Mycenae, Greece. There were old gods of the natives mixing with the new gods from the Indo-Europeans. 
1250 BCE is considered to be the golden age of the Nordic people in the Bronze Age. But that was all coming to an end. Just like in the rest of the world, trade was about to come to a halt, and everything was going to come crashing down. We mentioned before that a volcanic eruption most likely triggered an ecological catastrophe, causing crops to fail and summers to shorten. Fortunately for the Nordic people, they did not have to worry about the sea people. And the Bronze Age didn't end in an explosion of death and destruction up here like it did in the Mediterranean. Interestingly enough, we get our first written account of pre-Viking Scandinavia from a Greek writer. Traveling west from Greece through the Pillars of Hercules and north to Scandinavia, Pythaeus of Massalia writes about his journey around the same time as Alexander the Great and the Wars of the Deodoci. His writing is called On the Ocean. Unfortunately, his work has been lost and all that remains is fragments. The parts of the story that survive talk about Britain, the islands north of Britain, as well as a faraway place called Thule, where the sun never sets in the summer. It is here that we get our first written account of Scandinavia and the source of amber. Around the same time as Pythaeus traveled to Scandinavia, a warship sunk in the mud and was lost for over 2,200 years. It was never seen by people again until 1921, when it was finally uncovered by archaeologists. What makes this boat so fascinating is the way they connected the planks. Most boats have the planks connected end-to-end -end and are nailed together. If you can picture ten planks lying next to each other, each lined up end-to-end, -end, so that you have a flat surface, you would have the basic design of most boats. But this is not the way the Scandinavians built their boats. These boats had the planks overlap each other. The best way to picture this is to think of shingles on a roof. They aren't placed edge to edge, they overlap. This is how the Scandinavians built their ships. Every plank overlapped the next. The next written account of Scandinavia comes from a Byzantine Gothic writer named Jordanus. He wrote in the 6th century CE that Scandia, or Scandinavia, was a womb of nations, for many peoples descended from there. He said the inhabitants were taller and more fierce than the Germans. As the populations grew in Scandinavia, the excess people were forced to migrate south, and this brought them into direct contact with tribes of other Germans, who in turn were sometimes forced to migrate. This happened again and again. Almost every Germanic tribe that helped collapse the Western Roman Empire, that is the Burgundians, the Vandals, and the Goths, all claim their heritage from Scandinavia. Around the year 350 CE, another Scandinavian ship was sunk into a bog. This vessel was another clinker panel design, only this boat 
was far superior to the one recovered from 350 BCE. That's a whopping 700 years later, which proves the evolution of the Viking boat was slow and gradual. However, this vessel did not contain sails. The hull was framed in a way that made it suitable for shallow rivers, as well as sturdy enough to handle the rough waters of the open ocean. And it's most likely that the Angles and Jutes and Saxons who traveled to Britain used these boats. Between the years 400 CE and 800 CE, hordes of wealth had accumulated in Scandinavia. There's a couple of theories we're going to present to you here. The first theory suggests the Scandinavians were raiding into the fracturing territory of the Hunnic and Roman empires. Now this fits the character of the people we know as Vikings, so it's very reasonable to accept this argument. However, there's a second theory which is just as reasonable. This theory suggests the Scandinavian warriors traveled south and worked as mercenaries with Attila the Hun, and when they returned home, they brought with them tons of wealth. Ironically, as the great empires of Europe collapsed, the Scandinavians made their most amount of money. And this kind of suggests that Scandinavians only thrived when the great powers were struggling. Throughout the 5th and 6th century CE, these tribes from the north had accumulated so much wealth and power that tribal leaders became kings and started conquering their neighbors. Tribes gobbled up each other through bloody conflict, merging with each other until eventually there were only four major kingdoms in Scandinavia. The Norse in the west, Denmark in the south, Sweden in the east, and the Geats in the center. Around the beginning of the 8th century CE, the Franks were a real powerhouse. The Roman Empire was gone, and so were the Huns, but a new power was on the scene, the Carolinian Empire. We talked about the Franks at the end of Season 1, and how they unified the Germanic tribes. And under the mighty sword of Charles Martel at the Battle of Tours in 732, the Umayyad Caliphate was defeated in southern France. This curbed any expansion from the raiding tribes of Scandinavia. In fact, the Franks were known to raid as far north as southern Denmark. But there were other factors keeping the Scandinavians contained in the north. In the year 700 CE, another ship was lost to the bogs of Norway. This is known as a Kvalsund ship and explains the evolution of the Viking ship. This vessel was still using clinker paddling but it also had the addition of a keel. The keel was a sturdy piece of wood that ran down the center of the boat. The keel steadied the boat and made it easier to handle to open water of the oceans. But it also had another benefit to it. It allowed the boat to implement a sail. Until now, Viking vessels never had a sail. But around the beginning of the 8th century, a carving on the stones in Denmark showed a Viking vessel with a sail. This is the very first recording of a Scandinavian boat with a sail. It is the addition of the sail that revolutionized the Viking longboat. Even though the 
Calvison's ship didn't have a sail, it was able to support one, and it also had a dragon carved into the side of the ship. These might not have been the Vikings, but they sure as hell were their predecessors. In the year 789 CE, on the southern coast of Britain, what was then called Portland Wessex, a Scandinavian boat equipped with a sail, approached the coast of the Saxon kingdom. Someone spotted the sail on the horizon, but never alerted anyone. This wasn't the first time he'd seen a boat of this design, as Wessex had been trading with men from the mainland before. Nothing went wrong then, but this was different. The man from Wessex rode his horse to the beach to greet the traders, and it didn't take too long before he noticed something strange with these three ships. They weren't traders at all. The ships had dragons carved into the bow, and inside were men with iron helmets, chain mail, and swords. After the Vikings beached their ships, they walked up to the man greeting them and cut him in half with their swords. Once they killed the Saxon, they stormed inland, plundering the nearby villages. They killed anyone who got in their way and carried off anything they could find, from silver and coins to food, weapons, and supplies. After raiding the nearby villages, they got back on their ships and sailed away. This event is written about vaguely in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles and is said to be the very first encounter with the Vikings. On June 8, 793 CE, the Vikings returned to Britain. But this time they didn't go to a southern port in Wessex. This time they went to a remote island on the coast of Northumbria called Lindisfarne. It's unsure if they scouted this island out beforehand or if they stumbled upon it by chance. Lindisfarne was a small island monastery. It was considered the holiest place in all of Britain where the monks went to study and pray. There were no soldiers, no weapons, and no plan for defense. The monks spent all day scribing the book and making copies of the Bible that were given to missionaries and purchased from churches all throughout Europe. This monastery was wealthy beyond all means. They decorated the church with golden crosses, some encrusted with jewels. This little island was so holy and respected that Christians from all over Europe pilgrimaged there to see the holy parish. The church community had farms and people working in the fields all day. The Bishop of Lindisfarne watched the Viking vessels sail directly towards him. The Viking boats were long and narrow, with a big square sail. The serpent heads carved into the front of the boat must have made him nervous, as they sailed full speed for the beach. The boats didn't slow down or change course. They kept sailing straight towards him. And when they hit the sand and rocks and beached themselves, a large group of Vikings screamed as loud as they could while they ran across the field to the parish. Vikings slashed field workers down as they charged through the fields, and as the men descended on the church, they massacred anyone who got in their way. Monks were horrified, as this was the most sacred place in the Western Christian world. They pleaded with the Vikings to stop, only to have a sword plunged through their heart. 
There were so many slaughtered that the church walls were painted with the blood of monks. The Vikings tore down anything gold or silver, desecrating every holy relic. The holy men cried from fear of death, but also with sadness for the desecration of their parish. There were a few monks that were grabbed and dragged out of the church and brought back to the boats, while Vikings ran from house to house, killing everyone inside, stealing everything they could, then setting fire to the building. After a few hours of absolute horror, the Vikings returned to their ships and sailed away. The bishop from Lindisfarne survived the Viking attack and was horrified by what he found. The entire island was sacked. Most of the people were dead and scattered throughout the island. Almost every building was on fire and every single holy relic and treasure was taken. The bishop was furious and terrified. He wrote a letter to the other churches in Charlemagne's empire and other churches in Britain. Heathens from the north sacked the holiest place in Western Europe, and everyone better prepare themselves for their inevitable return. The Vikings who raided Lindisfarne returned to Scandinavia. The entire ride back must have been filled with excitement and cheering Vikings, with terrified monks huddled on the floor. When they returned home, they boasted to all of their friends of the slaves they captured and the gold and silver and precious materials they stole. It was so easy, they said. Not a single soldier was there to fight back. It wasn't long before another trip to raid Britain was organized. This time there were many more people coming, and this time they were going to seek out and find other churches and parishes. However, the Norsemen would not return to Britain. They had their eyes locked onto Scotland and Ireland. At the same time in Denmark, the king had taken complete control of the Jutland Peninsula and looked elsewhere to expand his new kingdom. Whether the king heard of the successful raid on Lindisfarne or not, he sent his Danish Vikings to Britain. Every year, more and more Vikings invaded Britain. And at the same time, the Norse Vikings invaded Ireland and built settlements on the islands north of Scotland. It didn't take long before a new slave trade was set up, where Vikings could steal Celtic slaves and sail them down to sell them to the Caliphate in Spain. Back in Scandinavia, we spoke about the Danish Vikings invading Britain, and we mentioned the Norse Vikings invading Ireland but we haven't talked too much about the Swedish Vikings. That's because they didn't travel west. They focused most of their raids on the lands to the east. The Swedish longboats sailed through the Baltic Sea, where they came to the mouth of several large rivers of eastern Europe. From here, they accessed the Dnieper and Volga rivers. These two rivers connected Scandinavia to the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, which meant it is a direct route to the Byzantine Empire and the Abbasid Caliphate. In 800 CE, Charlemagne was crowned emperor by the Pope. He was the first emperor in the West in over 300 years, and he signaled a new strength in Europe. As long as Charlemagne was alive, his empire was strong enough to hold his borders 
and protect his cities along the rivers. We also learned in the last season that Charlemagne's empire would survive his succession, but within two generations would break up into three smaller states. As long as there was a strong power around, it kept the Vikings at bay. But as soon as the Carolinian Empire crumbled, the Viking raiders grew more emboldened. What started off as a few raiders trying to make a quick win ended with one of the most violent and terrifying times in medieval history. Average citizens living deep within the empires and kingdoms of Europe now lived in fear next to tiny little rivers. The Vikings could come out of nowhere, attacking with speed and violence and running off as fast as they came, taking with them slaves and goods. The Vikings were old pagans who worshipped gods that resembled the gods of the old Greeks and Romans, with a god of the sky and a god of thunder. They rode boats shaped like dragons into Christian and Arab nations of the world, leading many to think they were demons or men of the devil. Soon the raiders grew into entire armies, with thousands upon thousands of warriors attacking some of the greatest cities in the known world. This period is known to history as the Age of Vikings. So early in this episode, we talked about how all the little tribes of Scandinavia grew more rich and powerful and their tribal leaders turned into kings and then eventually they conquered their neighbors and ended with four main tribes of Scandinavia. The Norse who became Norway, the Danes who became Denmark, and the Swedes who became Sweden. But there was a fourth tribe called the Geats who was kind of in the center of all three and there is no Geatland today. So we were a little confused about who these people are. So kind of looking it up and looking a little further into it, it turns out their land was called Gotland. And it was located on the, on the south of Scandinavia between Norway and Sweden. So I guess what happened was they more or less got absorbed. Yeah, we looked it up on Wikipedia, and it turns out some provinces in Sweden still have names that refer to the Geats. So uh, I guess the Swedes kind of absorbed them, but they never really went away, but they're Swedish now. The name of the Geats live on in the Swedish provinces of Vastergotland and Ostergotland, which really just means the Eastern Gotland and Western Gotland. Now that also reminds me of the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. They were all just Goths. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. <laughs>